I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This DevOps Lunch and Learn was about security practices. Specifically, we started building an outline of topics in security that we think are necessary for developers and operators to build secure applications. And so we chose to go broad and try to identify topics and information that people should know. Um, and we basically built a week-long course curriculum. And we will, over time, go through what this course curriculum is. But today, it's really fascinating to hear us walk through the process of, of understanding and knowing and following the thread of, if I need this information, I need that information. Uh, this was typed, and, and look in the show notes for a link to this, these resources. Uh, there will be some places where we're typing and, and obviously looking at the screen, and I apologize in advance. So if, if you want to see all of the detail here, please pull up the document in the show notes. Thanks, and enjoy. I guess we can start with the obvious, uh, please. like uh, CI components, or that's it, as people like to call it these days, DevSecOps. Uh, which is the typical uh, linting, SAST, DAST. Lint what? SAST? SAST, S-A-S-T, and then D-A-S-T. Oh. A T. Is, is Lint an acronym? I don't think it is. No. didn't think it was. Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess under linting you could also do like uh, style enforcement and, and whatnot, but but it, it's in the end the the same uh, rudimentary uh... where oh d d is dependencies. Uh, no, so dynamic. It's just dynamic and that's just, uh, uh, oh, dynamic and static. Yeah. All right. So static analysis and, and dynamic analysis is. Boy, um, my spelling brain and my typing brain don't go together, which is a problem. Um, yeah, that I, what Greg and I were talking about this this morning, about the the value. Does would that catch dependency? Because I'm I mean to me there's a dependency problem. Um. Yeah. So so SAS will will usually cover the the, the dependency part. I mean it, it will it will rely on a vulnerability database. But basically, if you run SAS against your code and your code imports a library that has uh, a vulnerable version and, and you pull that vulnerable version, then SAS should tell you that, hey, this version that you pulled is vulnerable. Right. SAS will also do licensing issues and or can also do licensing issues and, and other things as well, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Is it going to give you like, a best practice, like, okay, wait a second, you've exposed these ports or you have this coding style that would generate, could potentially generate a security issue and have to have it resolved or be, have to mark that it was appropriate? That, that, that the style may be, like, depending on, on, on what the particular, um, Malpractices there uh, for exposed ports, not really so much since um, you you can't be sure that 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 port is like exposed publicly versus internally versus only to a VLAN versus only localhost and so on. Um, they they are internally trial practices for port scanning and so, and so on, I would typically put that more into CIS benchmarks than, than analysis, than code analysis. 
So uh, anyway, for, it's not so much a development practice, but CS but benchmarks should probably be included here as a in the, discussion in, topic. And yeah, uh, just as a top level thing. Yeah. CS being CIS. CIS. Um, it's a uh, Center for Internet Security. Oh, that's that's yeah, okay. But basically, th those are typically the, the the host hardening guidelines as opposed to application hardening guidelines. Yeah, we could do a whole, there's a whole operational um, right we could we could do a whole section on secure op, you know secure deployment practices as a separate mm -hmm. hmm okay so sys benchmarks Yeah, to what extent do we need to cover, how do we want to cover relying on system system security or platform security versus application security? I mean, you usually want both, yeah. but um, uh, as a platform operator, you, you don't always control the, the application code. Uh, either because <laughs> yeah. either because it's not in house or because you, your teams are siloed. Um, so so system hardening um, typically starts with assumption your application might be vulnerable. How can you reduce the fallout from a vulnerability? Oh, I like okay. Or, or blast radius. So from that perspective, should we be talking about data storage, uh, partitioning, sure. limiting secrets? Encryption, yes. And, and on, on the side of, of, of secure development, um, Using appropriate encryption, as as in like po like publicly developed, not in-house encryption, um, making sure you <laughs> you're using the up-to-date algorithms. So so no MD5. Uh, um, that, mm, make sure like you're salting your keys and all the fun stuff. Yeah, it's, it's one of the, I remember we got, one of the things that we got asked to do was actually not not, not enforce an algorithm, but limit algorithms mm -hmm. that you can use. So systems, you could, you could force people into more secure algorithms. Uh, there was something else in the, oh, salting. Yep. Um, yeah. That is actually a really hard one. Huh. I have default default behaviors and defaults and, and safe uh I, uh, sorry, I'm typing and not talking for the people who are watching around. Um, <laughs> no worry there. Um, yes. Security faults. Yeah. 
uh, are a known Achilles heel of, uh, of applications. It's, it's well, one of the ones that, that to me is um, ah, eliminating. There's a secure system hardening. I'm in here. The root uh, dealing with elevated and root permissions. What were you going to say? Sorry. Um, yeah, not, not much. It's just basically, yeah, it's a, the, that the uh, security defaults are, uh, in many cases, the, the Achilles heel of, of many applications. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've all heard about uh, back in the days, the, the issues with, with exposed uh, databases, whether it's Elasticsearch or, or Redis or MongoDB <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah just because the default was to run it without a password. Yeah, uh, time to live on exceptions um, and tokens. Yeah, so like like I'm thinking through the idea of, you know, any any exposed surface area, understanding the, the you know, it's, it's the blast radius, but also understanding how long mm -hmm. and, and who has what permissions um and, and to a degree um like you, you don't see this often but i think it should be part of the usual um development practices not just for security but that is uh including uh sufficiently verbose observability whether that's mm -hmm. met whether it's just metrics or metrics and logs or metrics logs and traces but basically, my opinion on this is that if your system is observable enough, then you don't need to rely on direct access, which means is that you can close several doors that can be used mm -hmm. for escalation. Uh, so that makes sense. Can the substitute for direct access? I have I have actually the opposite problem, which is uh, leaking sensitive data into into logs. That's another one. Yeah. Uh, and anonymization of logs as well. It's uh, it's not not as easy uh, as you would think. The chance of leaking PII is quite high. Incredibly high. Yeah, and there's some places where it's just completely unavoidable from that perspective. Um, like I know there's times when we generate, you know, information. Uh, on a very no narrow time window, but sensitive information is necessary to configure systems. And then mm -hmm. it's, I mean, you have to have it, um, but then it can leak into logs and stuff like that. Um, I, in the background, I was adding um, some time to live, elevated permission, working with elevated permissions time to time token revocation. Um, mm -hmm. Are all are all useful. Interesting. There's actually a whole section on on trust. I mean, we're going to be talking about external secrets in a couple of weeks. Um, and maybe I should just hold off on external uh, external secrets. But... Oh, you know what else we're missing is um, tracking. Tracking user behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if I'm sitting down, what about things like uh, have we got logs, API access? Is there I mean, with HTTPS nowadays? You're, we're less concerned about people reverse engineering URLs. Do we have URL token? Like it's back in the days when we used to put this, the Rails frigging cookies in 
secure token cookies into everything. Um, so actually, this session, there's a session. I'm not even sure where user session should go for this stuff. User session. That's probably another good topic. Yeah. Um, caching sensitive information. Tokens or cookies. <laughs> um, it's actually worth having a password management uh, and processes. Do we, boy, there's a whole auth Z auth N, that's its own topic. Um, don't, don't forget the third day accounting and accounting. <laughs> okay. So it's always AAA. Go. <laughs> Triple A. There you go. All right. I'll, I'll accept that. That makes sense. Uh, role based off. Uh, so in actually doing this well, Mm -hmm. Really, really. That's a. That's a. We could have whole hours on on the, on these topics. Yeah. MFA. Yes. I, I guess I usually think about delegating it all the way. That's just that's delegated back to an authorization system, but or an auth authentication system. But uh, not rolling your own. And it's warning me that I might have internet problems. I don't know. All right. I, this one, this one actually to me is fascinating because every time I've started a new platform or an application, I've always been like, let's not do auth, let's make that one hundred percent delegated, and you can never do that. It drives me nuts. Um, you have to have some your own auth for something, right? The system has to have something. Yeah, I mean, at, at the very least, you need. RBAC so that um, you, you can decide yeah. who has access to what. Uh, and, and yes, you, you can delegate like just the, the user management to, to an OAuth or, or IDC provider. But you still need to interface with them. You still, you still have to build all that stuff yourself. I've never, I, that's, it's just never been an easy, I haven't seen an easy button for it. Or a really simple pattern. What am I? What are we missing? It's a, it's a good list. I feel like we're flying, we're flying through it. So we're not, we're not thinking that as deeply. But um, we, you know, I can go back and look up actually training outline. Nice. And the next time yeah. a system is designed, they start with security and they put the framework <laughs> in place, and then it's like you have to like plug in on top of this security framework. I the, the challenge that I've seen with with like when we started uh, Rebar, we started with a secured like tokens and did I think a, a good job building a tokenized system at the base, because we've done this multiple times. But as we went forward, there were more and more cases where we had to deal with secure you know, exceptions or elevated permissions for certain things, or um, like it, it was, it was having, a, having a basic system was critical, but the exceptions were, were equally important from that perspective. Um, 
yeah, Rocky, you're right. That's got to be got to be designed in. That's partly why I want to try and. But, and that's to what you were saying when you started with it. Uh, when you had dealt with the exceptions, you were dealing with the exceptions with the knowledge of a secure system as opposed to dealing with the, uh, the assumption that all these insecure things are just the way life is. So the, the, the foundation would allow you to be more secure even when you did insecure things. Right. Right, so you could make the you could you could open things up or make exceptions on it. Hmm. Here we go. I'm fine. I, I look for an outline, and there's a believe it or not, a GitLab I'm looking at, I'm looking at, I'll pull up the link that I have so people can see it. Oh, cool. I'll add them, I'll add uh, posted. Uh, can I share this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Put it in the, this is um, another uh, cybersecurity meetup that we could collaborate with on the discussion. That might be fun. Yeah. Uh, the, the organizers um, are largely out of Arctic Wolf. Uh, you might have heard of them. Okay. Um, um, yeah, they're, they're smart people. Know. Yeah. So the other thing about taking security into account and how we're deal dealing with this is that it really goes against all these people trying to be agile because you can't be agile and think about all these things and, and consider just the elevated uh, authorities as normal because they're not, but agile doesn't look that way. And so security is antithesis to agile in many ways. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. Um, I mean, there, there is a place in Agile for concerning security. I would say more that security tends to be the, uh, or, or, or inversely, marketing and sales tends to be the nemesis of security. <laughs> it's like, okay, show me a proof of concept. We have a proof of concept. Great, let's sell it. And then they're like, no. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I got the context that my name out right when you were saying the specific thing. <laughs> it's like, ah. Zoom is running at the same time. Yeah, mine's mine's choppy too. I think it might be a Zoom. Yep, yeah, I did it. I don't usually have internet issues. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that this is part of part of this to me is like, all right, how do we, we? You know, you have a product. Zoom's gonna make this hard. Maybe it's me. Uh-oh, can people hear each other? Or did we lose I, everybody? Maybe. I can still hear you. Okay, good. I, it got super I'm back choppy. on then, so it wasn't me this time. <laughs> <laughs> we got a bit of uh, compression noise uh, on, on the audio uh, every once in a while, mm -hmm. but uh, I would say 90% tolerable. Zoom keeps telling me my internet's unstable, so. Yeah, maybe my machine just needs a reboot. But because it's all all fiber. It doesn't um, tell me that on my phone, even though it is unstable on the phone. <laughs> it's a it, that's a given in the design at that point, right? 
That's funny. All right. I'm, I'm thinking through. We've got um, how valuable is the reporting and tracking vulnerabilities piece in this? Feels like it's it's feel like it's worth dis discussing this. Like, should we, you report vulnerabilities? How do you report what's what's like? Are, are we talking internal process when when say our, our pipeline? Uh, rejects a commit because of a vulnerability or are we talking external reporting? I'm thinking external reporting because this is this is where it gets gets strange. You could be in a situation where you find right if you find a, a vulnerability for somebody you want to you want to <laughs> you want to tell them um, right um, but it's not always clear that what you're finding is a vulnerability. And so it's it's useful to say, all right, how do we evaluate? How do we know? Um, um, how do we know, right? In some ways, that's what the whole discussion is supposed to be about. Because I, I mean, my experience has been that sometimes it's sometimes it's super clear. It's like when you navigate here it exposes sensitive information. And sometimes it's like, when you configure things in this way, you expose information. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not a valid configuration or it's not a secure configuration, so. Um, I mean, th that is kind of why you have the difference between static analysis and dynamic analysis, uh, as well as like things like OWASP uh, top 10 scanning is that you you are you're tracking your your own vulnerabilities at different levels uh, and then going to to the reporting topic uh, typically you, you fall into two categories one is a new vulnerability that that you just found out in which case you're, you're typically a top of the line security researcher I'm not going to even cover that because I'm not too familiar with the, that whole process. But then there's also the, the regular process of um, just people scanning the, 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 the whole network uh, and finding common known vulnerabilities because they, as, as you mentioned, they've been misconfigured. Uh, like, like even using common tools like show them. But does that then create a, you know, sometimes that's an error. Sometimes that's a, yeah, we know. It's just, that's that's what it's gotta be. Uh, I would we, say most of the time, it does, falls into either two categories, either the, the person running the, the, the site application doesn't care or they, they care, um, they haven't implemented the fix yet. So, so it's either ignorance and just unwillingness to fix it. Um, th those who are willing to, to fix their, their issues typically are fairly on, on top of their vulnerabilities. And they, they typically have uh, like, like a contact uh, that is publicly announced to say like, hey, if, if you find a vulnerability with our site, send it to, to this address and then and we'll deal with it. That they may even have like a bug bounty. So yeah. Cool. Yeah, so it's it's these uh, reporting and bug bounties and things like that, I think are, it's, it's something like I, it's, it's, I always assume I know it. And when I get into conversations about it, like how, you know, what notification requirements are and how you should notify and what you should do and things like that, it's, 
Yeah. It's always what, sensitive. Yeah. What, what is typically more controversial is what happens if you find a vulnerability, you report it, you've gotten the acknowledgement that it is a vulnerability mm-hmm. and nothing is changed. <laughs> and let's say three months later, like you, you, the vulnerability is still in place, you suspect that it's, it's being actively exploited. Do you go public with it? Do you pressure them? Uh, um, yeah, so that there, there's several articles over the years of, of various security researchers taking different stances on, on this. And the, also, does it uh, open you up for uh, criminal charges if you report it out beyond the uh, security community? So mm-hmm. there's that out, mm-hmm. in, that thing too, where you could be in legal trouble for reporting beyond the local stuff. There, there's also something just in um, Microsoft uh, Exchange. Uh, it allows and fails to note uh, multiple languages within a domain name so you can put Cyrillic letters in there unless it's Cyrillic Cyrillic letters in that look just like English letters and it doesn't identify and the 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 real bug was when you use that domain and it would report back as if there it were all English letters so the contact information is shown from Mm -hmm. the contact at the domain you're you're spoofing not at the the uh, one you've created. So it's, it lies to you. And Microsoft actually said, yeah, we know about it. We're not going to fix it. Well, they supposedly fixed it, but they said, we know about it. We're not going to fix it. And that's just, you know, for phishing purposes, really bad. But, you know, Microsoft initially said not an issue when it was reported. So how do you deal yeah. with that? Yeah, I, I, I remember that the that thing with the survey, particularly when when, uh, when the, the the restriction on, on characters and domain names got lifted, um, there's one particular character that that's basically a non-printable white space Unicode that you could use in, in a domain name. Um, oh, wow! So so you could create a domain that was at least to the to the end user identical to an official one. <laughs> well, and the letter I appears both, there's the Cyrillic I and there's the uh, Latin I, and that's what they were showing today. And this was something that just happened recently with the uh, showing the contact of the person at the domain with the Latin I, even though the domain actually had the Cyrillic I in it. It only worked on Exchange. It doesn't work on uh, Outlook on uh, over the over um, in browser, but it's like you know not an issue. I guess somebody figured out it was an issue and they fixed it really quickly, but they didn't tell anybody they fixed it. So it's not clear that it actually got pushed out to any new uh, new versions or patches. Uh, homograph attack that that's the general category of uh of these kind of issues yeah this is uh, there's there's a whole security component of input validation and making sure that the things that you're you're receiving are things like you expect right the classic bobby drop tables mm-hmm. um Yeah, it's especially hard on loosely typed. Uh, I'm going to include type type validation in this. Yeah, um, one of the things. Perhaps in the reporting, it might actually be reasonable to put in there a section on um, responding to reports. Because it's your code, so 
how should you respond to reports and how should you handle reports addressed to you? Mm -hmm. Not just reporting out to other issues, to issues with third party software. Yeah, and there's tracking. Uh, this is tracking and, and incorporating fixes. Yeah, there's a whole. I mean, it's, it's you could you could spend the whole day talking about how do you manage other you know code that you depend on having vulnerabilities and what you do to manage that and, and how you make it go forward. Oh, you know what's missing in this? Um, I'll put it under process and security, which is. Um, uh, tracking channel, uh, channel uh, issues. <laughs> yeah, you need tracking. to track everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not. I was going a different place, but let me get that one. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> that's, no, that's good. Um, I'm glad to have X. Whole idea is get get all the stuff. Um, I was thinking about. Um, Process safety. Oh, uh, release uh, backward back porting to uh, previous release. It's back porting. Uh, one of the things about uh, all this stuff that is always interesting is like, hey, I found a security vulnerability in some some library. Uh, we just hit this. Um, with something that we had a WSS library that we depended on, Gorilla. Greg would Greg would know offhand, but um, and so there was a known there was a posted vulnerability to a, a library that we depended on to generate um, sockets or, or um, web socket events, and it's a question of how far back. If we're if we're patching that, how far back do we go in previous releases? Like it's super easy to incorporate the new fix. Hey, here's you know the code we're working on now includes the new fixes for the libraries and dependencies, but propagating a, a release of a, a fix or a release can be a pain in the tuchus. And then what's your what's your reporting obligation when you fix other, you know, you incorporate security vulnerabilities from other people's stuff? That's a good one. Yeah, there was um, a point that Cisco had to do a, a security patch. I mean, this was back in the aughts. And uh, they had 256 releases they had to patch because of it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I know that because that was the responsibility of a friend of mine. Another thing that, that comes up that I've been trying to get a friend to come on and talk about release and he's at one of those big companies that starts with a V and he's talking about tracking down, he's release management. He's talking about tracking down every single source file that is out there, both in use and not in use. One is getting rid of all the things that aren't really being used, uh, removing them from the system so that other people don't start using them. Right. And the other thing is going through and finding everything that's out there, and especially with these older versions that are antiquated and possibly security holes, getting those removed and replaced with something that, that's uh, more modern and maintainable. Good luck shutting down Stack Overflow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's an element of, hey, wait a second, we need to build, um, you know, it's, it's we, we just updated our, our whole build infrastructure use uh, GitLab, which is exciting. That'd probably be a, another <laughs> complete hour topic. Um, but, you know, being able to go back and say, all right, how do we, you know, is, is a uh, build from two years ago you know, how do we know that the GitLab build from two years ago is dot patchable? Do we need to care about it? How do we want to deal with it? Um, we have we have we have contractual 
you know, limits on, on that type of repair. But certainly can be tricky, especially if you've, re, you know, changed the build system out or lost yeah. it. And this guy is, uh, he's released for the um, operating system side of things, virtual machines and stuff like that in the V company. And he's kind of sort of a single source central thing and he's retiring in January. And so they're sucking information and building uh, dashboards and stuff. And he's sitting there telling them, well, this dashboard doesn't really show what the important stuff is or yeah, it shows something that gives you no information on how to find it or fix it. And so they're tapping him for a lot more now that somebody <laughs> that cares about release management is in charge of it. But for up until last year, he was pretty much, yeah, they were actually cutting back on their release management group and whatnot. And, and their open source side of things was done by open source and uh, they knew he was going to be going soon, but they weren't doing anything to uh, grab his knowledge. Yeah. So, and so these big companies with a history really have some hard problems in there when it comes to release management. And you're learning that too, Rob. <laughs> well, it's I, to me, this isn't just a big company problem. It's not a commercial software problem. It's it's a open source issue. It's it's small company. You know, small companies. Um, I'm actually I'm really proud of the you know hygiene that we have on our build processes, especially with with this migration. But um, these are really hard hard things, and they're security. There's there huge security implications. And, and it's even harder finding, sometimes finding the right talent to, to implement this. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a big problem with smaller companies. This is not usually considered the uh, premium work. Yes. Well, and it's also getting the people with the right personality and mindset, because even if you hire someone to do the implementation and they might have the experience, they might not have the personality to do the detail bits and the essentially what a lot of people consider grunt work because it's very, very detailed and repetitious in lots of ways and other ways it's not. So it's just mm -hmm. uh, developers, developer attitudes and, and uh, personalities don't map to a lot of the security stuff. And the, you know, just like QA people, testing QA people, uh, they could develop, but their strength, it's like, how do you actually compensate people for the, the stuff that makes a difference between good product and just code, whether it's, even if it's good code, the bits and pieces attached to it could make it poor, poor product. It's kind of the essential workers uh, in COVID. Everybody had to, the, the folks that had to be there had to be there, the nurses, the doctors, the food delivery, the cooks and whatnot. But they're the folks who get paid shit because nobody wants to do that work. Yeah. Off my soapbox. <laughs> no, it's, this is part of what I'm trying to capture here is to raise, right, when we talk about security, and I mean, some of those is our is our our own background and our biases with this. But you know, when we're talking security in this case, we're looking at it very holistically, and we're we're looking at the build infrastructure, we're looking at the data infrastructure, um, <laughs> logging. Um, it's funny because I you know part of what I was thinking we would talk about would be you know some like string formatting behaviors and stuff like that, but I it's it's not the place to start. The place to start is understanding the environment the code is running in. Uh, it would also be useful perhaps to, um, to consider um, the ultimate, ultimately the, the end goals of, uh, of vulnerability exploitation, whether, whether that's hmm. uh, huh. system takeover or data exfiltration Like, what is it 
what is it on your system that you have that is valuable? I like this line, uh, data extraction. Jeez, I can't type it all. Chaos. So I, I, I'm typing in, um, you know, what's what's the, the risk of, if somebody's attacking you, right? Are you compromising You're systems? Profit. Yeah, that's true. Because lots of times it, it's they don't have to do any of that stuff. All they have to do is sow enough confusion that they can profit from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Profit ransom. In fact, uh, that was what happened to my husband just this weekend. A uh, thing po popped up that said, your iPhone has been compromised. Oh. Hackers have all your information. And this popped up on his iPad. Right. And it was a piece of adware malware that got somewhere in a Google search. Mm -hmm. uh, so he went, he was doing a Google search of pictures and this popped up and he's totally confused. And I sat there and it's like, okay, turn off all the history on this, do this. Do this, do this. <laughs> because it says, uh, you get this pop-up and it says, okay. And this was the Google app on iPad, not a browser. So the uh, everything they talk about repair is in browsers, not the app. The app doesn't have a way to repair this or remove this particularly much. So it's a pain in the butt. But it was just so in confusion, and it just sends you off to a malware site to, to load all this adware that's supposed to fix mm -hmm. it all. <laughs> Profit. It's interesting because your story is making me think. We actually got a an email from the bank relating to, um, it's a long story, but but the bank sent us an account alert for an account we don't use much at all, don't even think about. And so we got a legitimate alert from the bank. My wife was like, oh no, she clicks on it, starts opening it up and doesn't recognize the account number. And then, and you know, all Helen, she's, we're assuming it was a malware attack when it was actually a legitimate bank email. And it took us literally hours to track down that it was legitimate, that we hadn't compromised all our accounts and done all these other things. And there's an element in, in security here, which is actually making sure that, that people can trust the messages that you're sending them. Um, Conversely, there's the security training aspect as well. So not not just protecting your code, but protecting your users on, on their accounts or your developers. Oh, 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 wow. Yeah. Hold on. Where am I gonna put that? And we're out of we're out of time for, for this process and security. But the supply chain attack, which we haven't even mentioned yet. Um, mm -hmm. Well, we kind of yeah. sort of did in just third-party software and, and maintenance and stuff like that. But no, it's still it's still got more stuff in it than that. So yes. Yeah. No, it's all right. So we touched on it, but we haven't explored it. <laughs> well, this is this is a good start. What what I would suggest we I need to look at the outline as a whole and then see if we can break things down into this could literally be in topics that we just come back to. Um, as a as a topic list and pick a couple out. And we so, don't have a shortage for topics. But. <laughs> well, the other thing worth doing is a little bit of online research to see if other people have created the same thing mm -hmm. or something similar. And then yeah. uh, you know, curating and editing to the point where it, it's uh, like best of kind of thing. I mean, there's literally entire businesses around uh, yep. trying to address this. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I pulled up this GitLab to make um, money off of it without training. addressing it. <laughs> well, I, there's just there's so much to cover. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, these are these are paywalled. The additional resources I'm linking to are paywalled. Cool. I this was helpful. I I actually like getting the bird's eye view of security topics, and then uh, we should come back and and do these as like training. See if we can get, especially if we can get somebody to come in who wants to talk more in, in depth on any one of these topics because they're potentially all long. Yeah, that would be good. Excellent. Thank you all. Appreciate the time. And uh, I actually feel a little smarter about security, <laughs> which is always helpful. A little, a little more scared and a little bit smarter at the same time. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. As I was saying, security is one of those topics where there's so much and it's so interconnected and you really need to think about the system here. And, and I appreciate that in this conversation, we did think of it as a system, not just how do I write a line of secure code? Uh, we will keep going into security topics, uh, secure configuration, operations, development in DevOps Lunch and Learn. And if this is a place where you want to get smarter or you have an expertise that you want to lend to the group, please join us at one of these Lunch and Learns. Uh, just let us know and we'll put you on the schedule and we will dive as deep as you want into your topic. I'm looking forward to hearing from you at the 2030.cloud. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.